Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So uh, I bet you didn't expect to see me up here, right? I know. <laughs> uh, so this morning, I'm, I took on the task of uh, talking about Exodus 19 through 40. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, there we go. Good. Awesome. <laughs> You're fine. Um, so anyway, I decided that I would take on the task of talking about Exodus, the last half. And um, it would be obvious to talk about uh, the Ten Commandments or maybe how the tabernacle was built, but I don't like doing the obvious thing. So instead, we're going to talk about origins of worship. How about that? Uh, so this is one of those things that I felt a call in my heart to talk about for a while, but I haven't had the words to eloquently, eloquently speak them until now. So we're going to get into it. So first and foremost, I hope everybody has their Bibles today because we're going to be doing a lot of reading. <laughs> so... Yeah. Was that a yes? I think I heard one. Okay, awesome, cool. Thank you. All right, so we're going to be reading primarily out of Exodus, but we're also going to do a little bit in Genesis, and we're going to kind of go from the beginning of Genesis up until the end of Exodus and talk about what worship is and where it starts, where it, where it originated from, what it is becoming, and what it's evolving into. Um, it's one of those things that, as a music leader, I am obviously passionate about, but I've also uh, been called and had my feet stomped on several times just by reading this stuff, because a lot of the things that I thought worship was is not necessarily what it is. There's more to it. There's more depth to it. So um, if you guys will, go ahead and get your Bibles out, and we're going to start with Genesis 3. So go ahead and get there while I go ahead and do these next slides. So um, I guess the ultimate question of the day is, uh, what is worship, right? Yeah. Okay. We can get that next. Yeah. So what is worship? Um, worship comes from an old English word called worth-ship, uh, which means to proclaim and give back worth. Or in our common English, it means to show gratitude. It's just a simple sign of gratitude. It's giving back worth to God in this particular case. Um, so we can go to the next one. Uh, worship is seeking God's presence in everything that we do. So uh, let's turn over to Genesis 3, 8 through 10, and uh, we'll, we'll go a little further from there. So we're going to start with these two characters that we know and love, Adam and Eve, right? They're the first people in the Bible. And because of this, we're going to talk about how God's presence was actually with them in the garden. And as you saw in this last video, it talks about how in Exodus, especially the latter half of Exodus, it's all about reestablishing a presence, a connection with God's presence, which is what they lost after they were exiled out of the garden. So we're going to start with uh, Genesis 3, and we're going to read verses 8 through 10. Okay, so here we go. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So while this is the latter half, this is after they've eaten the fruit of the tree and they've shamed what they would, shouldn't have done and they, they disobeyed God's command, it establishes that God was there with him, and his presence was with him as well. He was in the garden. He was walking around, just hanging out. They had this ultimate connection that we don't have. They could physically see God. They could talk to God. They could give him his worth just face-to-face. It was an intimate connection. And as we know from there, they were ousted out of the garden, and they lost that connection with God. And since that point until now, we've been trying to reestablish How do we get into his presence? And that's what worship is. It's all about finding moments in time to reestablish our connection with God. 
we can't see him face to face like they could, but now we have the Holy Spirit and Jesus has redeemed us, and because of that, we can have a deeper connection. But in the Old Testament, it was much harder. It was much, diff- much more difficult for them to get that connection. And so we're going to move on to uh, Genesis 4. So we're going to pop over there real quick, and we're going to talk about two other people in the Bible. And I'm going to be kind of getting, coming in and out of different stories and getting in and out of Genesis and then making it to Exodus as well. Um, but in this particular one, we're going to talk about Cain and Abel. And this is uh, the beginning of humanity's search for God um, and his presence again. So if you're with me, uh, Genesis 4, 2 through 7. And uh, I'm reading out of the ESV Bible, so if you've been reading the app, this may sound really familiar. Uh, it's the English Standard Version. It's the same thing. So if, if you're feeling it, this is what it is. All right, so it says, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So as we know from here, Cain obviously kills his brother. And sin has taken a hold of him, and he gets casted out. But what's important about this here is that the two of them brought offerings to God in a form of worship. Um, if we go a little bit further up, let's see, we'll start at verse 2 here. Uh, it says, And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So what's interesting about that is they were both called to different things. Abel was called to be a shepherd. Cain was called to be a farmer, essentially. So what's interesting about their offerings is not what they gave, but how they gave it. It goes into a little bit more detail of Abel's offering than it does of Cain's. And it talks about how Abel gave of the firstborn of his flock and the fat portion. So he basically picked out like the best of the best and said, this is what I'm going to give God. Whereas Cain, it really doesn't describe what he did. So one would be left to assume that he just gave out of excess. You know, he, he probably had extra of his crop and gave out of excess. And God, I don't think he was angry or disappointed with Cain to the point where he was shunning him. I think he was more like a parent who is upset by someone who brings bad grades home. Prime example, uh, back in the day, my mom and dad held us to a certain level of excellence. A's and B's, you know, you got to keep those A's and B's. But if you get a C, it's not so much that they believe that you should do better. It's just that they've raised you and they know that you can do better. The same goes with Cain. He could do better, but he didn't. And that's why he was ousted. Actually, he wasn't ousted until after he killed Abel. But it was the beginning of the end. He let sin crouch in his door. But my point here is that they were giving out of their vocation. So they were giving out of their calling. Abel, once again, was a shepherd. He was called to give out of what he had. Cain was a farmer. He was called to give out of what he had. So this is where we're going to start to see worship evolve a little bit. Um, Basically, our vocation, can we hop over to that screen, if you don't mind? Um, A vocation is a strong impulse or inclination to follow a particular activity or career, a function or station in life to which one is called by God, or in Latin, a vocatio is a call. Um, And basically, what we'll see as we're going through these books and we're talking about different people in, in the books is they all had a call, and all of it was different for everyone. And you have a call as well. And your worship stems out of that call. 
So like while worshiping for me, maybe playing guitar and singing because that's the obvious thing for me to do, what worship for you is maybe something different. And as we go into that and we go further down, you'll see just kind of how it evolves from there. So once again, their vocation, he was a shepherd, the other one was a farmer. And it's important that they gave out of their vocation because that's what God wants us to do. He gives us talents, he gives us abilities, and he wants us to use those to worship him. So let's move on to the next part here. So we're going to go ahead and hop over to Exodus 4. So we're going to skip through Genesis. So go ahead and get ready. Exodus 4, we're going to be like down in in number chapter 20, or verse 20 there. Um, In the meantime, just to recap, in case you guys forgot, um, in the first book, Genesis, there's a lot of episodes of personal worship. So there's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, Joseph, and they all have these individual relationships with God. Um, where they talk to him one-on-one, and God instructs them to basically impart their dreams or what they say to the people. But what we're going to see in Exodus is God comes down through Moses, and he is looking for a communal worship experience. So he's trying to get back to the fold of everyone. He wants to get back to the heart of Israel. So he's not just wanting to establish a relationship with one person. Now he wants the whole nation of Israel back into the fold. So if you guys are with me, we'll pop over to Exodus 4, and we're going to read from 22 to 23. And if I'm moving a little fast, just let me know. You can yell at me or something and be like, dude, you're popping in and out of the Bible too fast for me. Okay, so this is the beginning of the call, and this is uh, after Moses has gone out into the wilderness, and he's spoken to the burning bush. And uh, Jesus, or, sorry, God has given him a direct order, and that is to go to Egypt and return his people to him. So in 4, um, 22 and 23, we'll see, then it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, and I will kill your firstborn son. As we know, the story goes on, it ends up, destroying Pharaoh, and Pharaoh does release him. But what's important here is that he's not saying to release one individual. He's not saying release Abraham or just the sons of this person. He's saying all of Israel. I want them to come back to me. I want them to serve me. I want them to worship me. And so God is establishing a communal worship experience. And he's saying, hey, let's get back to the fold. I'm I'm tired of speaking to just one person because all of humanity is flawed, it'd be easier to talk to everyone in one, one accord. So, as we know, the story goes on. They move out of Egypt, and they go through the river and, and, and on the other side, and God does amazing things for him, for them. And then in Exodus 15, which will pop over there, uh, we see essentially the first song of praise. So after God has, has saved them, and they're out of Israel's grip, and they're past the river, Uh, It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And of course it goes on longer. They had a lot of stuff going on. But the, the thing that we're trying to establish here is that now we have a group of people together collectively worshiping God. And so before, where everyone was 
basically just a personal experience and God visited them when he could or when they needed him the most. Now they have the ability to speak to God directly and they're singing to him, which is an interesting fact. So if we move a little further down in verse 20 here, we'll see that there's another person that gets brought into the fold of this. And then it says, Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And what I love about this is now, not only are we singing the first song, but we're seeing the first use of an instrument and dancing and praise all together in one place. This isn't some New Testament idea. This isn't some crazy Pentecostal idea. These people have got a tambourine, and they're like, we're going to use it for God. So they're coming out. They've, they've been redeemed. They're out of the river. they have out of Egypt's hands. They're out of slavery. They're going into the desert. They're excited. They have these songs. And what I love the most about this is that we have not only our first song, but we have our first example of a worship leader as well. And that's Miriam, the prophetess. Amen. It's not Moses, or it's not someone before her. It's, it's a woman. God used Miriam. And then the other women who led in dancing and singing. So there's this new establishment now, too. In Genesis, there's some old world views of like what women should and shouldn't do. But now we're starting to see the revolution begin, right? Like God is giving us songs, and God is putting women at a higher place than, than they were before. And he's exalting them, and everyone's coming together. And it's beautiful. Our, our level of equality in worship is established right here. And actually, in some, type, some cases, you could say that they superseded what the men were doing because they took it one step further. They were not just content with singing songs. They were like, hey, I got a tambourine, and I got dances. Let's go for it. So what's great about this is we're starting to see God bring us into communal worship, which is kind of like what we do here on a Sunday. We have our personal worship, our personal vocation, what we do in, outside of here where we pray to God and we give praise and we give our voices and everything from there. But we also have this important other part, which is the communal worship, and that's coming together. Um, and as we know, and later, later on it says, you know, we're two or more gathered in the midst, there I am with you. And this is where it's important. Everything is a type and shadow of one thing or the other. But God starts this right here, right here with this song, and right here with these group of people. So <clears throat> let's talk about Moses for a minute, because Moses is a certainly, certainly an interesting character. Uh, so... <clears throat> Moses begins Exodus as what I would consider to be a deeply conflicted character. He's one of those people who has a lot of baggage, I guess. He's a descendant of Israel and ends up in the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. He sees injustice towards his fellow man and in return pays it with brutality by killing someone else. And then he basically runs away to save his own life and then finds God in a burning bush. Sounds like a very interesting story. Um, so anyway, God is capable of using uh, even the weirdest of individuals. I just want to get at that. Uh, but God basically tells him that he's going to use him as a vessel, which he greets with a serious amount of disbelief. And then God ends up using him anyway, which we see in Exodus 3 through 12. So if we want to roll there, I can kind of... Exodus 3, verse 12. Okay. I don't know if I've put it on there or not. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's... Uh... Oh, no, sorry. That's the wrong thing. We'll skip that for now. No, no, it is right, actually. I was looking at 13. Wrong thing. Okay, yeah, he says, God is saying to Moses, but I will do with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
So what's interesting is we're coming back to this mountain. They're out of everything. They're out of the desert. They're into the desert now, and they're starting to build a, a place for God's presence. But like I said, Moses is a pretty conflicted individual, and he spends most of the beginning half of Exodus doubting his own abilities and doubting not God, but doubting, doubting his, himself. He has to have Aaron there to interpret for him because he's incapable of doing it himself. And so there's this sort of conflicted relationship. But something happens with Moses, and I think it's probably after he's seen all these miracles and after he's made it through the river and after he's laid down you know, his staff and he's seen all these things happen, he goes from being this conflicted sort of individual who has these problems and doubts his abilities to suddenly becoming a fierce worshiper. And he suddenly starts devoting himself more and more and more and more to God. And as we see in the last half of Exodus, when they're talking about building the tabernacle and when he's basically getting the information for the Ten Commandments, God starts talking to him and he starts talking back and he starts playing this like role where he is devout. He wants to see God's presence. And that's where things start to get a little interesting. So if we will, we'll turn over to Exodus 33. And we'll start with verse 7. And this one is uh, a little longer, so I might break it up here and there as we go along. I'll give you a minute. So in Exodus 33, if you're at verse 7, um, we're going to start with the tent of meeting. So this is before the tabernacle is built. There is a tent that's set up, and it's basically uh, said that the cloud of God comes down to this tent and Moses, or whoever wants to enter at this point, can and have a, a sort of one-on-one relationship with God. Not see him face-to-face like Adam and Eve, but they can be in his presence. So it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So once we get to this part, and I'll read a little bit more in the future, uh, we're talking about the tent. The cloud comes down from the mountain, and it's sitting above it, and this is God's presence. Moses boldly enters the tent, right? He goes in, he's like, I'm going to see God today. And everyone else stands outside because they're afraid. They see God's presence. They see the cloud. They see the lightning. They see all this stuff. And they're thinking, I, you, I just can't do it, right? <laughs> like, I can't go in there. I, I might die or something. But Moses does not fear that. And instead, he goes directly into it. And it says over and over and over again that the most the other people would do is go to the entrance of the tent, but they wouldn't go in. They're standing outside of God's presence, but they won't enter. <laughs> and to me, that sounds insane, but then at the same time, it really doesn't. I mean, think about how many times you've been in a place where you feel God's presence around you or you notice God's presence. And it's maybe too much to take. And you can see it, but you just don't want to go through. <laughs> you know, I think we can all admit to that. I, I've had that happen so many times. I mean, even in worship or not even in worship, even when I'm just at home and just acknowledging God's presence around me. I can see it, 
but sometimes I just stand outside. And you can still get the feeling of that. Like you can see the presence and you know it's there and you can acknowledge it. But wouldn't it be better just to walk a little bit further in <laughs> and just take one step further in and see what happens? If it kills you, at least you died on holy ground, right? Like, at least you entered into his presence. Of course, now we don't have that problem. We're not going to die from being in the Holy Spirit. But at the time, everyone was scared, except for Moses. So while others were content with staying outside and worshiping, he felt the need to go in the tent. And so while we're in here, we're going to talk about Moses' intercession. So we're going to keep reading a little bit further down. So now we're at verse 12. It says, Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, and I your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see." So what's interesting about this, Moses is in the tent. He's praying to God. He's partially praying for intercession for his nation. So he's praying for Israel. And he's saying, look, how are we going to know that we are the chosen people if we don't know you like you know us? I can talk to you, but I would want to see you. So he's like, I want to have the intimate relationship that Adam and Eve had. I want to see you face to face. I want to know you more. And God says, look, sorry, but if you do, you're going to die. And he's like, but I will grant you this one thing. And he basically promises him that he will reveal part of himself to him and show his glory to him. And also gives that promise and that covenant for the rest of Israel, which is why they start building a tabernacle in the tent. Uh, But basically, this is the, the start of God's covenant with Moses. He's saying, look, I know you want to see me. Right now, you kind of can't. It's complicated. But we can make it work sometime. So, so they get into this, this prayer, and, and as we know, God is saying, I will reveal myself to you. And basically, this is slightly after the first uh, version of the Ten Commandments is smashed, and we know that God is calling him back up there to redo it and also to set some more laws. And it's in this point that God is going to reveal himself to Moses, partially. So we'll continue on, uh, and I'll talk more about Moses as we go along. But if you will... Just a little bit over, we'll hop over to Exodus 34, and we're going to start with 1, and we're going to read through verse 10. So as we know, Moses, at this point, is, is a fierce dude. He is saying, hey, look, I am not content with sitting outside of the tent. 
I want to be in your presence and I want to sit down with you and have a conversation. And so we go into 34 and it talks about that a little bit more. So the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and I will write on the tablets the word that were on the first tablets, which you broke. He's saying, hey, you broke a man. Um, anyway, be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So what's interesting about here, he's saying no one shall come with you. And before we had a few other people who came with him to help him transcribe and to write things down. But what's interesting about this is God has made this covenant with Moses and Moses alone that he will reveal himself. And no one else has the ability to see him because Moses is the only one who pressed further into the tent. Moses is the only one who attempted to even get close to God. And God is making that promise to him because he's the one who said, you know what, I'm not content with being outside and staring at this cloud. I want to be inside. So anyway, we'll continue on. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai. As the Lord commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it's a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So Moses makes his way up to the mountain. God reveals part of himself to him and makes his promise that he'll forgive the iniquities of the future generations if they follow him and they follow his rules and his commands. Moses has the opportunity to have this one-on-one connection. And rather than asking for something for himself, he asks for these people. He says, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Moses isn't concerned about himself. He's concerned about these people that he dragged into the desert. He knows that they're out there and he knows that they have mountains of problems and they have this tendency to worship other gods if they don't see signs and miracles and he's praying for them he's not praying for himself and what's amazing about that is this this is one of the things that hit me is like a lot of times when we come into the mode of worship we're coming into it for ourselves we're thinking oh gosh if i could just hear that song that i love you know it would be great or if i could just pray the my favorite prayer or if i could just say these words or, God, I need money this week, or whatever. There's always something that we have, our baggage, our, ourselves. And when we bring that into worship, we're not bringing the right thing into worship. We're not supposed to be praying for ourselves. We're supposed to be praying for Him. We're supposed to be giving His worth to Him. We're, it doesn't even matter what song we play. It doesn't matter what prayer we pray. It doesn't matter about any of that. We're supposed to devote our worship, our worthship to God. This is what Moses is doing. He's giving him his worth, and he's saying, look, I got problems. I got mountains of problems. I'm crazy. I killed a dude. You know, like, forgive me for that, but, you know, let's move on to these other people. They need you even more than I do. 
And so what's amazing about this is Moses has gone from this timid individual who was afraid of his own words, thinking that he was inadequate and not eloquent. And now he is at this point where God is using him as a vessel for his people, writing commandments, writing laws, establishing what he needs to build. And it's not because he's doing it for himself. It's because he's doing it for others. Let's move on to Exodus 34, verse 29 through 34. So this is the third part of Moses' fierce worship, as I would call it. Fierce is a word that we throw out a lot, or my generation does. It's like when somebody is like a diva, you know, they snap it out, they're fierce. (laughs) Moses, I believe, was fierce. At this point, he probably was like, yeah, man, I'm walking down the mountain. I saw God. What's up? And it kind of shows it later on. But instead of Moses being the one who does it, it's like God has blessed him. And and we'll see here that he has a a glow. We'll We'll just go from there. So if you're here, Exodus 34, 29 through 34. So when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets and testimony that he didn't break this time uh, in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. This is really, this is like my favorite part. When Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And then Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him again. So what we're seeing is Moses comes down from the mountain. He's had this amazing experience with God, and he is now glowing. He is literally glowing. Um, And so it is apparent to everyone around him that he has been in God's presence. He doesn't have to say a word. He doesn't have to be like, hey, we had such an awesome service on Sunday, and, you know, the worship was just amazing. He doesn't even have to say that. Like, he is literally like a glowing beam of light. Um, which is what we all want to be. We want to just be glowing with this light. And at first, like they were afraid of the presence of God, they're afraid of Moses. They're like, dude, this guy is weirding us out. He has gone into this tent. He's gone up on the mountain. He's come back down. He's yellow. What is his deal? <laughs> so they're, they're freaking out because they're a little bit weirded out by it. But then he reassures them, hey, it's me. I'm just a little bit different, right? Like I'm, I'm a little bit different now. I don't know if you guys have seen The Lord of the Rings, the movie The Lord of the Rings. In the first Lord of the Rings, there's this character called Gandalf. Um, there's like types and shadows of the Lord of the Rings in the Bible. It kind of all goes together somehow. Anyway, so Gandalf is this dude, and he basically fights this evil fire demon, right? And dies. But when he comes back, it's like he's like a type and shadow of Jesus, I guess. But he comes back, and he's not Gandalf the gray anymore. He's Gandalf the white, and he's like glowing all the time, and he's white. That's kind of how I picture Moses looking. He's this guy who's like coming down from the mountain, and he's no longer just like, hey, you know, I went to talk to God. He's like, hey, look at me. Here I am. God's talking to me. God can talk to you. So we're seeing this moment in time where everyone's scared of him, but then he reassures him, hey, it's me. I'm still the same guy. But now I'm a little bit different because I have this glow. And when I said my favorite part is this, he puts a veil on himself when he goes out into the world. So when he's out by the temple 
And when he's in and going out, he, he will reveal himself to God and God only, which I think is amazing. And then he comes out and he says what God says. And then he's like, all right, veil on. You guys can't stare at this glowing face forever. But he's basically shunning himself from the world. He's saying, look, I want to continue this mode of worship. So I am putting this veil on my face and I am not going to enter into this and this. I'm not going to enter into, you know, uh, Rohithus over here who killed someone's calf. And I'm not going to deal with that. You can go talk to Aaron, right? Like, go talk to him. I'm in worship mode. So he's got this veil on, and he's like, I'm going to stay here. And I will reveal myself to God and you once God has revealed himself to me. And that's it. And so it, it got me thinking, like, okay, uh, I don't have a veil. I'm not going to, like, wear a veil out in public. But at the same time, when I'm in worship, sometimes it just feels like it just ends. You know, the moment ends. And I don't continue it on. But God's called us like he called Moses to continue that level of worship, to continue it not only in our worship mode and our prayer mode, but to continue it into our, our calling, our vocation, to continue it into our work, to continue it into everything we do, our, our friendships, our communications, our relationships with people. He's calling us to continue that mode of worship Amen. and to let people know that we are in a mode of worship. We don't have to wear a physical veil, but we have to put on that mode enough to where people can see the glow that's coming out of us. And so it's interesting because Moses, I think, is like the beginning of this this revolution in worship. Before in Genesis, everyone had moments with God, but it was on it was like God came down to them. God would say he would wrestle with someone or he would, you know, give them a dream or a vision. But now God's saying, like, hey, I'm here. You have to come to me. And so far, Moses is the only one brave enough to do it. But what we're going to see in a little bit is there's a few other people that God kind of brings into the fold to help him build this tabernacle, which the tabernacle is this place that God hopes to establish as a place for worship. So let's move on to our next two individuals. Uh, So we're going to go to Exodus 35. And we're going to read from verse 30 to 35. And here we're going to be talking about Bezalel and Oheliab. I think I nailed it. I got it. Yes. Oheliab. Yes. Got it. Surprisingly enough, Bezalel did not throw me off. Oheliab threw me off. I was thinking like, Ohio Lab? Oh, I don't know. Anyway, there's some, there's some interesting names in here, right? So when we're in Exodus 35, we're going to read from verse 30 to 35. So um, while uh, he was up on the mountain, the things that I'm excluding from this particular, because it's way too much information, um, but if you've read it, you know. God not only gave him the Ten Commandments, but he also gave them some laws to follow and also some very specific instructions on how to build this tabernacle. And when I was reading it, I'm thinking, like, this tabernacle must be huge. And then it turns out in the end, it's actually just this little thing that's probably maybe no larger than this stage because it can fit in a tent. It can fit in a tent. So what's interesting, though, about it is God has called two individuals to facilitate his needs for building it. He realizes Moses is like, you know, he's in worship mode. He's not, you know, a craftsman, right? Like, let's be honest. He's, I need him for something else. We need Miriam to lead people in worship. We need Aaron to interpret all the things that, all the crazy things Moses is saying. 
So we, we need somebody else to do it. And so he brings in Bezalel and Oholiab. So from 35, verse 30 to 35. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he is filled with him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oheliab, the son of Ahismach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer, or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled design. So God has instructed Moses to tell these people. A lot of this stuff's repeated. So God talks to Moses, Moses talks to people. So there's another version in here where earlier where he says this. But he's called Bezalel and Oheliab to craft the tabernacle, but also to teach people to help and assist with the crafting. But what I love the most about this is he says he has filled him with the Spirit of God. And then he goes on to say what he has given him, which is a skill, intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship, artistic designs, gold, silver, and bronze. So this random dude that up until this point probably hasn't deserved to have the Spirit of God in him is just suddenly blessed with the Spirit of God. So what we're seeing is now we're not only talking about Moses being blessed with the Spirit of God in this glow. Now we have Bezalel who's coming in here, and he's got the Spirit of God. And Oheliab has the Spirit of God. And what we're seeing is God is starting to communicate on a more communal experience than he was before. So he's bringing people into the fold. He realizes that humanity cannot rest on one person, except for Jesus. We'll get to that later on another date. But he needs everyone to believe him. He needs everyone to see him and be part of the Spirit. So he blesses Bezalel with the Spirit of God. When I think about that, I'm like, gosh, like that must be like intense. You're probably just like laying in bed, and then all of a sudden, like you get hit with this like revelation, like I'm gonna build ten pages of a tabernacle of different types of acacia wood and have oil all over the place, like a just insane amount of information. And he just gets it. He's just like, yeah, all right. And then he probably goes and finds Ophelia, and they're like, yeah, dude, did you have that dream? Yeah, I did. And so there's this interesting moment where God is blessing these people with the Spirit of God. But what's different is, whereas Miriam was the leader in music and worship, and Aaron was the person who was the interpreter for Moses, and Moses was a leader in prayer, and all these other people, Bezalel and Oheliab, are different. Their connection with God is a physical one. It's through their vocation. It's through their work and their calling, which is to be craftsmen. And so what we're seeing is these multifaceted aspects of worship. Worship is no longer just a song. It's no longer just a prayer. It evolves a little bit more, and God is bringing these people in and using their unique talents to build this tabernacle, to make it more like Eden so that they can actually worship God. So I guess the thing I didn't answer is what worship is and what worship isn't. So worship isn't just a song or a prayer. What worship is is a call to intimacy in everything we do. Our praise, our prayer, our vocation, our communication with our friends and family, every part of our life evolves into worship. Every aspect of life is worship. We worship Him by reading the Bible. We worship Him by praising and singing. We worship Him by using our hands. We worship Him in every aspect. 
you may not be a shepherd like Abel, a farmer like Cain, an ark builder like Noah, a leader like Joseph, an interpreter like Aaron, a musician like Miriam, a craftsman and teacher like Bezalel and Orheliab, a writer and prophet like Moses, but you are called for something. You're called to be a devout worshiper, just like Moses. You're called to use your skills and relationships to worship God and bring others into the fold of God's presence. So think about it today. What are you called to do? God's placed you in a unique place. You've been crafted out of dust. Just like Adam and Eve, you were crafted. You were given a unique set of abilities. And those abilities need to be used for worship. How do you use them? I will be the first to admit that I don't use all of my skills for worship. I've isolated some of them. I've, I've said guitar playing and singing, that's my worship. But I have more to me than that. I'm more than just one of those things. And so are you. I mean, look at Bezalel and Oheliab. They are craftsmen. They are artists. They're, they can work with gold and bronze and stones. You have something for you. You may be a nurse. You may be a teacher. You may be a farmer. You may be an agricultural worker. You may be someone who just picks up the phone and, and has a chance to greet people. You may be a salesman. It doesn't matter. God uses you and your talents for worship. But you have to use them. So because Jesus is sacrificed, we're able to tap into the Holy Spirit in ways that Moses' generation never could. As we find out later on, they build this tabernacle. They have it in the tent. Moses goes to enter the tent because he's that fierce dude who's like, I'm just going to do it. And he can't. He can't because his presence is now built and it's so strong. And what we also find out later on is that the presence follows them around and they follow the presence around. So as he was promised, he was like, how will we know that you are God? And he's like, here's my presence, follow it. The presence comes down from the clouds, sits over the tabernacle, and then when it goes away, then they move the tabernacle to be with it. They're like, we're never going to get away from this, but none of them can go in it because they don't have that redemption that we do. We have that redemption. We can just tap into the Holy Spirit whenever we want. It doesn't take a song. It doesn't take prayer. It doesn't take any, like literally any of this. It just takes devoting our time and our vocation and our words and everything we do to him, and then we will see his presence. So I ask you this question. Are you one of those people who stands outside of a tabernacle, watching his presence fly by, seeing the clouds, seeing the lightning, getting a little bit of the remnant of his presence? Are you content with that? If you are, by all means, stay out there. But if not, step into it. Step into it with everything you do. You have the tools to do so. You have this knowledge. You have the impartation of the Holy Spirit in you. You have the ability to take it a step further and have worship, worthship, a relationship. Worship isn't a song. This is the one thing that I've, I've come to the conclusion now. I don't even have to play songs. Worship isn't about music. Worship is about giving worth to God, taking your skills and realizing that God is in what you do if you just give back to him. So that's my part of Moses in Exodus. As we will find out in Leviticus, it gets a little more detailed and and we start finding the people of the Old Testament working their way back into the fold of God, which uh, involves a lot of instruction. And and thank God we've moved on to the part where we have Jesus who's saved us and, and given us that ability to do so. But as I said before, really think about what you do. Are you uplifting God in everything you do, or are you just simply content with seeing it and not doing anything about it? 
Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just come to you this morning, and I thank you for giving me the words to express because I was certainly a little worried about that. But I just want to give thanks for allowing us to come here this morning and to learn from you and to, and to be in your presence. I think a lot of times we think that presence is a feeling, but it's more than that. It's something deeper. It's an intimate connection with you, and it's being able to talk with you just like I am doing right now. I pray that everyone here in this congregation hopefully learns something from this and impart, will impart that into their friends and their family outside in the community. And I pray that everyone in here will be like Moses and will have that glowing light as they leave this congregation. I think as far as it goes, we are trying our best to be closer to you this morning, God. And not just this morning, but every day this week, and every day next week, and every day next month. Amen. We just pray that we will dedicate ourselves and our vocation to you more, and that we'll be drawn into the fold, and we will be able to be in your presence. In Jesus' holy name, amen. 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 Good word.